Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 15. My dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, we're going to consider the just and true last plagues. The just and true last plagues. Let's pray. Father, as we rest our eyes upon our own copies of your word and on this passage in Revelation 15, we ask that as we look at these words and seek to understand them, that you truly would give us understanding that we would be careful to view you in light of what you've said about yourself because you've not left yourself to be a mystery to us. You've told us about yourself. And based on that, may we believe that you are who you say you are. And as we go through this text, rejoice in who you are and in what you do. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are reading straight through your Bibles in a calendar year, probably this week you're coming upon the book of Exodus where you hear that God's people are going to cry out for deliverance because of their slavery in the land of Egypt. The end of Exodus 2 says, God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. As you read through that story this week, you'll read the story of Moses, whom God used to deliver his people. But that story takes some time. You see, the, the Egyptians were not willing to let the Hebrews go. But after ten plagues, they finally decided to let them go. However, Pharaoh changes his mind and decides to get the Hebrews back. So as the story goes on, Israel finds itself delivered from Egypt, yet not completely, because Pharaoh has chased after them and cornered them at the Red Sea, and they have nowhere to go. So their redemption had come, but it was not complete, because the Egyptians still pursued them. And we live in a similar situation spiritually. We've been redeemed, yet we await further redemption. We're forgiven of all of our sin. Yet we're not free from all of our sin. We are part of God's kingdom. Yet the kingdom of this world has not yet become the kingdom of God. We are waiting. And Revelation 15 focuses our gaze upon what are we waiting for? And what is that going to require? And how are we supposed to feel about it? This book of Revelation is a book of drama. It is action-packed. But through the drama, we have found pauses in the story. And those pauses are for us as readers of it. Christ's judgments include the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bulls. But those sections have been interrupted. They've been paused for other sections that are for our benefit, that help us, that set us at ease, that help us understand what's going on in the story. So we've just been through one of the darkest sections of the entire book, We have been through the villain section where we came to understand who is it who opposes the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what we saw in Revelation 12 through 14. And now as we get into Revelation 15, we will see how we are to feel when things are finished. Young people, look in your Bible at the very last word of the chapter. And the very last word of the first verse. And what word is at the end of those verses? Finished. Finished. We learned in the previous chapter that the hour of judgment has come. 
And we learn here that it will be finished. And what is required for final redemption, well, that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for redemption, and it's going to require something to come. It's going to require that hour of judgment that, according to this text, is going to be brought to completion. This passage is rather simple. It divides in half after verse 4. And in the first half, we learn that Christ brings final redemption for his people. In the second, we learn that Christ brings final redemption through wrath. So two points today. Verses 1 through 4, we learn that Christ brings final redemption for his people. As you look through this first portion, you see there's a topic sentence which tells us what the whole chapter and the next chapter is about. But then we have a focus on people. We look at where they are, what they are, and what they're doing. You see, God's people are going to sing about God's judgments. But first, we're going to see their cause to sing. Why are they going to sing? Verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Redemption comes when God's wrath is complete. Redemption comes when God's wrath is complete. The wrath of God is finished with these last seven plagues. This first verse talks about finality. Finality. And you know, we all love when things are completed. We love the last day of school. The last day or the last field to be harvested. The last load of laundry. The last load of wood. The last detail to the bathroom remodeling. We all love when we come to the end and something is finished. Well, here are the last of the plagues of judgment upon the earth. They're last because with them God's wrath is going to be concluded. You see, for God to complete redemption, he must complete his wrath. And until this point, the other judgments that have come upon the earth have been partial. They've been partial. They've been increasing in scope, but they've not been complete. What that has given mankind is the opportunity to repent. God hasn't destroyed everyone. He's only destroyed a portion of mankind in the hopes that people would turn to him. But now with these last plagues, the time is up. With these, Jesus is going to come back. Time will be no longer for folks. There will be no more opportunity. I want you to notice who it is that holds these plagues. The angels hold them. And this is the sign. This is the third sign mentioned in the book. It's explicitly mentioned in the book, and it's the last one that is explicitly mentioned. That's not to say that what we're reading here is symbolic and not real. When we compare these plagues to the plagues that happened in Egypt, they actually happen. When we read the story of the Exodus, it is really the case that there were ten plagues. And we ought to read the Bible in the same way here that when it talks about these plagues, they will really happen. So as you turn to the next chapter, the 10th verse, it talks about the darkness that will come with the fifth bowl. That is a true, real, physical darkness. It is not some sort of spiritual darkness. Just as it was in Egypt, so it will be here. But you might say, well, why does John say that he saw a sign? Why does he say that he saw a sign? As we go through this passage, you're going to realize that seven angels hold plagues, bowls of God's wrath. 
And typically, we do not think of the wrath of God in such terms, as if the wrath of God is a liquid inside a bowl. And that ought not catch us off guard because we've already seen this kind of symbolism. Because back in chapter 5, the prayers of the saints aren't typically thought of to be incense in golden bowls, but that's how they're described. It's one thing that stands for another. We can be sure as we look at this that these seven plagues are certainly literal, and we may be sure that they are the last. And when they are completed, final redemption will come. So redemption, we see, is related to God's wrath. It is also related to God's people. And that's what we see in verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3. Redemption comes when God's people are delivered. Redemption comes when God's people are delivered. This is the portion of the passage that I wanted you young people to get from the second stanza of We Come, O Christ, to You. Let's see where the people of God are. Verse 2 says this, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. Remember chapter 4, that was what was before the throne. This is in the vicinity of God. This is mingled with fire, speaking of judgment. It appeared to me a sea of glass, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Where are God's people? God's people are with Him. You see, when we're finally redeemed, we will be with God. You know, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, man has been separated from God. But here is a scene where there is no longer separation. And all of us know that separation is a hard thing. I have pictures with my grandfathers, which both of them have passed on to go be with the Lord. But when I look at that picture, the separation is a hard thing. I feel the separation. You feel separation from your loved ones. Well, we as God's children feel the separation from God right now. But what we have here is a picture of being with Him one day. That's a good picture to look at. Because when He brings redemption, we will be with God. The text says that they are standing there with Him. That's good news. We see where they are. Let's see what they are. The text goes on to say that they are those who have conquered. They've conquered. So when we are finally redeemed, we'll be victors. These are tribulation saints. They're tribulation martyrs who have overcome the temptations that have been thrown at them. They've been tempted to worship the beast. In his image, they've been tempted to trust in something else instead of the one living and true God. They have been in battle, but the battle is now over. So today we consider our battle because we are still at war. Every true Christian is constantly at war because Galatians 5 tells us that the flesh is at war against the Spirit. And there are a few things that get at us as much as battling, war, conflict. We don't like those things. We like them to be over. And while we don't like the conflict around us, we don't like the conflict in us. What we have here is a portrait for our encouragements that these saints have overcome. 
They're victors. And this has to be really encouraging to the saints that were in the churches of Asia Minor because at the end of every single one of the letters to those churches, Christ promised them if they would overcome. And here they see those who have overcome. This is good news. This is calling them to overcome the sins that Christ pointed out in their churches. One day the battle will be over. That is good news. Now lastly, I want you to look at what they're doing. Where they're standing, what they are. What are they doing? Verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses. song Moses wrote. The servant of the Lord and the song of the Lamb. This is a song that the Lamb is responsible for. And what we see there is when we're finally redeemed, we will be delivered from sin. As you see on the screen, as you see in the kids' bulletins, in, Ex- or in Exodus 15, Israel stood on the other side of the Red Sea. And they sang the song of Moses because of their deliverance from Egypt. Encourage you to perhaps look up Exodus 15 today, this afternoon. Israel was already delivered from Egypt, but they weren't yet finally delivered because of Pharaoh and his chariots that were chasing after them. But once they reached the other side and God allows the waters to come back together, these Israelites sing, the horse and rider are thrown into the sea. Okay. Those who pursued them are now gone. And these tribulation martyrs, they're going to look at the final wrath of God being poured out in the seven bold judgments. And what are they going to do when they see God's wrath? They're going to sing. They're singing about the judgments that come from God's wrath. Now, I looked, but our hymn book does not have a section about songs on the wrath of God. We typically don't think in terms like this. Most people don't sing about devastation when it happens. Something terrible happens, people don't sing and rejoice. Something terrible happens, they cry. We know the story of the Grinch, right? You remember how the Grinch went into Whoville, took all of their Christmas things, returned to the mountaintop, and he turns and looks at them, and he says what they will do when they get up He says, their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo-hoo-hoo. That's what we expect will happen when terrible things happen. And what we have in this chapter is a startling juxtaposition of putting two things side by side. God's wrath and songs, singing, rejoicing. But as long as you remember where this is from, as long as you remember the context of the song of Moses, I think it really puts things into perspective. When the Israelites got to the other side of the Red Sea, they sang. Those who pursued them were destroyed. It is a good thing to be beyond the other side, safe and sound. Egypt was no longer chasing them. And if our redemption is going to be final, if God's kingdom is going to finally come, that means that all opposition has to be done away with. And the song of the Lamb is that it is Jesus Christ who is going to bring all of those things about. He is going to deal with all of those who oppose him. So just like the Israelites who sang on the other side, we too rejoice at this. When we are finally redeemed, when we're with God, when we're victors over our sin, we're delivered from sin, 
which is going to require the wrath of God, we will sing. See, redemption comes when God's people are delivered. We've seen so far two points that our final redemption is related to God's wrath. It's related to God's people. It's also related to God's praise. Look at verse 3 and 4, where we learn that redemption comes when God is worshipped. We need to look carefully at what they sing. Verse 3 and 4. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Speaking of His power. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Speaking of His position. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. You see, God will be praised for all of his judgments. God's judgment is going to evoke reverence from people because God's acts are amazing. His acts are amazing. And as you go through the next chapter that talks about these acts, these acts of God are unequaled. No one else can do the things that he does in these chapters. He alone is the Almighty One. He's going to send plagues on the whole earth. And when he does so, he's not unfair when he does it. Because the second line we see of the song is just and true. Not only are God's acts amazing, they're fair. And then we go on to see the rhetorical question that we need to make sure we know the answer to. The question is, who will not fear? And the answer is, Given these acts of God, all will fear. Our nation has been through a hard week. A week that's been unsettling. To some degree, every person is impacted by this week and what happened. People look at the news and they take what happened seriously. Yet when God acts one day, it will command such a greater response. People will take him seriously because of the greatness of his acts. And if we need something to lock on to understand what, this, what kind of thing this is, we can run back to the book of Joshua. Remember how the 12 spies went into the land of Canaan? We saw that the two spies went to Jericho and they met Rahab. And Rahab spoke to them and she said to those two spies that they had heard, the people had heard of what God did how God had delivered the Israelites from Egypt and how God had parted the Red Sea. And Rahab said to the spies, when we heard that, our hearts melted. And as we read through the successive chapters in Revelation, the heart of the world will melt. We'll see that all are going to see that God is great, that he is mighty that there's no one as great as he is. So when God acts, who will not fear? All will fear. Not only is it going to bring reverence, it's also going to bring worship. It says not only who will fear, but who will not glorify your name? The answer is that all the nations are going to come and worship you. We see that answer in verse 4. Because it is God alone who is holy, who is sacred. There's no one else like him. And on that day of judgment, it will become plain and clear and obvious that there is no one else like him. No one else can do this kind of thing. 
And once he acts, all are going to come and worship him. And this is a good reference for the margin, chapter 3, verse 9, because this is part of the promise that is given to the badgered saints of Philadelphia. Remember how the synagogue of Satan was opposing them, and God promised them that one day they would bow before God, showing that the faith of that church of Philadelphia was not in vain. He says, one day those who oppose you will bow before me. That's an encouragement to keep on with the faith. That's an encouragement for us in our faith. As our faith is opposed more and more as the days go by in our land, to persevere in the faith for Christ. Sometimes we think, Lord, I really wish you'd do something spectacular. I really wish you'd just rend the heavens and show yourself. And then I wouldn't have to explain my faith to people and have them belittle me for what I believe. Well, the point here is that one day God will do that, actually. He's going to do such great and mighty things that all will see it and all will bow before him, fall on their faces. And all are going to worship him for his righteous acts. That's the last statement there of their song. And that is going to be a hard thing for us to understand at times. His righteous acts refer to his judgments that he does in his wrath. When he comes and he judges and does such terrible things in chapter 16, the assessment of that is that it's righteous, it's just, it's fair. That's hard for us to think about, to talk about, because what often happens when we talk to other people about God, they come back at us and say, How can you have a good God who's so unkind and unfair? How is it that your God pours out judgment on people? I don't want a God who's like mean like that. So when we read the words that what he's going to do is righteous, sometimes we stutter over that. We wonder, how can that be? But again, let me give you a passage to latch on to that helps us understand this. Young people, we teach you the Sunday school stories for a good reason. I want you to go all the way back to the book of Kings, where you come to King Solomon. Solomon was the king who received wisdom from God. And you remember there was a case that Solomon faced that was very difficult, the very first one that he faced. We have the story of a newborn child who has died, who is killed on accident. We have a grieving mother who switches her dead child with another woman's child. And of course, that situation comes before the king to solve. Solomon's choice, faced with the choice of determining which mother is the true mother of the living child. And he decides, it, decides that case by calling for a sword and simply instructing that the child be cut in half and half given to one, half given to the other. And instantly in that moment, the true mother of the child gives in and says, no, let the child live. And in the moment, we see there's the truth. That's the one who's the true mother. Listen to how the end of that passage closes. All Israel heard of the judgment of the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And on a far greater scale, that is how the judgment of God one day will be. 
That is the response to it. No one in that day of judgment will think they've been cheated. No one will think that God has been unfair or unkind. People are going to stand in amazement at the judgment of God in that day. Today we struggle to appreciate it because our hearts are evil. Because we don't know people as God knows people. He knows what's in their heart. We don't. And we don't know God's perfect holiness as we will one day. We don't know how wicked sin truly is. But one day, our eyes will be opened. And in that wonderful day of judgment, all are going to praise Him for who He is and for what He accomplishes. Because God is going to bring final redemption for His people. That's what we see in these first four verses. And they're going to sing about deliverance, and they're going to sing of God's judgments that are going to be accomplished. And if we're going to understand this redemption... Not only is it going to be the redemption of us being delivered, it's also going to be the redemption that requires the punishing of the world. Just like the redemption that was required, the punishing of those who chased the Israelites through the Red Sea. So secondly this morning, in closing, Christ brings final redemption through wrath. Through wrath. In this second portion of the chapter, the, the focus of the camera changes. In the first half, was, it was on people. And now it turns to a place because it's from the sanctuary that the wrath of God comes. And in verses 5 through 7, we see that God owns the wrath that brings final redemption. We're not supposed to think that the final judgment one day is a task that is too dirty for God to be a part of. You must not think that the judgment in the end is some kind of backroom deal where thugs report to the boss that the deed is done. That's not how it happens. That's not how it will happen. Instead, God takes responsibility for what happens. And we know that from the place that is the focus of these last four verses. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests, That reminds us of the description of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. So these are his agents there, dressed as similar to him. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So quite plainly, God is commissioning his angels to pour out his wrath. These angels are the agent of God who do, do his bidding. Psalm 103 verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones, who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. And these angels are given bulls of God's wrath. That is to say, they are given the duty of inflicting God's wrath. And as we go through the next chapter, they are going to pour out these plagues. Yet, ultimately, it is the wrath of God that is being poured out on the earth. And I want to draw out this point because the text draws it out, but also because I think we often shrink at talking about the wrath of God. We we shrink at talking about the wrath of God because there's a part of us that wonders, is there something wrong with God having wrath, being angry? I just want you to think for a moment. Mom and dad, think about this. Think about being at home, hearing a bark, and then hearing a blood-curdling scream of your child. In that moment, 
you move and you are ready to, com- to combat any obstacle that might be in your way because you will come to the deliverance of your child immediately. And when you have that response to that situation, there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. And so it is when God's wrath is poured out on acts of wickedness against him. There's nothing wrong with it. That's appropriate. So we should not shrink back when we consider God's wrath. I think many times we struggle with the wrath of God because so often our wrath, our anger is sinful because it's focused on ourself. It's not focused on the Lord and his honor as it was in the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. So, What we find first is that God owns the wrath that brings final redemption. Secondly, in verse 8, God displays his glory and power through his wrath. Look at the sanctuary again because the passage goes back to it. Verse 8, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. What we find is to the end of his wrath, to the end of God's wrath, the sanctuary is filled with holy smoke. This is a scene like Mount Sinai where Israel received the law. This is a scene like the scene in heaven where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. This is a glorious scene like the scene of the mountain of transfiguration. This is a time when the glory of God he will set on display. This is a glorious time. And in that day, his glory and power are not going to be hidden as they are hidden today. At that time, it will be plainly displayed. And it will be far superior to the time when Israel was delivered at the Red Sea. This time, He will bring His wrath to a close. He will bring final redemption. And He will come. And that's our hope. And that's what our hope requires. And what we're supposed to feel about it. Father, as we close then today, may we look rightly at you and what you promise that you will do. Help us to understand you and understand your disposition towards those who oppose you. May that challenge us to never, never oppose you. That is not safe. It is always right to fear you. It is always right to worship you. We struggle with so many things because of our hearts which are so sinful. But we pray that a passage like this will raise us out of our sin-cursed hearts and thoughts. That we would look on you with delight. And that we would glorify you. That we would look at a passage like this and find what a joy it will be to be finally redeemed. To be with you, victors, and delivered from our sin. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.